and codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. your hosts. Hello, Captains. Welcome to Trek It Out on the Priority One Network. I'm Elijah. I'm Leah. And I'm Tony. The last several weeks of Trek It Out have been busy with interviews with guests like Vic Mignana to Tim Russ. It's been an epic journey and totally fun and nonstop. But instead of Trek It Out being a weekly podcast where we do weekly interviews, we've decided to stick to a monthly format. But not only will you be listening to the same amazing interviews that you've been used to, we'll also cover the month in Trek and general sci-fi news. We hope Trek It Out will become your monthly one-stop shop for all things Trek and sci-fi. So don't miss Trek It Out or our weekly Star Trek Online-focused podcast, Priority One. You can do that by subscribing to our feed at feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. New to the Priority One Network is Leah, self-established geek who fills my Facebook feed with news and nuggets of awesome, geeky goodness. Hi, Leah. Hello. So you got to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's see. Well, I live in New York. I do crazy, boring IRL work for a company, but for all of my free time, I spend it online, either on the social medias and talking about new sci-fi stuff. I write for a geeky website. I talk about all the things, but I am first and foremost a Trekkie since I was about six years old. Nice. Now, what Trek did you start with? Did you start with the original series or TNG? TNG, because by the time I was about six or seven, TNG had just wrapped up and it had begun in earnest in syndication and I was at the age where I could really understand space travel and, and aliens and monsters and that really cute ensign who was tiny, so... <laughs> Um, I, w I started with TNG, <laughs> and then I went back and watched a lot of original series, and then, of course, I followed DS9 and Voyager as they aired on television. Awesome, awesome. All right, so what's your favorite Trek movie? I gotta go with First Contact, man. Okay, all right. Love me some Borg. All right, cool, cool, cool. And uh, the second best one. It's good enough, second best. All right. <laughs> yeah, you see. Yeah, you pass. You see, for me, it's anywhere between Khan and First Contact. Those are my top two. Con's my number two. Okay, all right, all right. You're, you're legit. You're legit. You can stay. <laughs> <laughs> and that manly, resonant voice you're hearing is of Tony, who not only co-hosts our weekly Priority One show, but also acts as director of video publications here on the Priority One Network. Guys, it's a pleasure getting us together here to talk about all things Trek. So this episode, we'll be reviewing this month's happenings in all things Trek, and we have a special interview with Manu Intereme, known for his role as Echeb in Star Trek Voyager. Now, you got to stay tuned for this because he spills some awesome spoilers about his upcoming role in Star Trek Renegades. So, keep listening. All right, let's get cracking and trek out what happened this month in the news. For those of us interested in the local solar neighborhood, we have new information that Pluto has some orbiting companions. The people over at www.plutorocks.com recently held an online poll to determine what to name or what to rename the really boring little rocks called P4 and P5. And they had an online contest and had over 450,000 votes cast. In third place was Styx, great 80s band, maybe not the best name for a moon. <laughs> Second place, Cerberus the three-headed dog guarding the gates of Hades. Okay, all right, well, that's, a, that, that's a good one. But in first place, and one that shocking move, quite frankly, for such a cold part of the solar system, Vulcan. We can thank William Shatner, who took to his Twitter feed to whip up all of his supporters to go to that website, plutorocks.com, and vote for Vulcan. And uh, carried the day with over 170,000 of those 450,000 votes that were cast. So if they follow the will of the people, we're going to have two new moons of Pluto named Vulcan and Cerberus. <laughs> That's pretty fun. 
Although you're right, because Vulcan's a pretty hot planet, so... I know. Well, I mean, suppose we discover the real one out there sometime, and we're going to go, now which Vulcan is that? Is that the close one? Or is oh, that the far so one? The hot one or the cold one? Which one are you? <laughs> you have the pointy ears, that's right, not the tentacles. Right, okay, yeah, you're the far one. It'll just be Vulcan Prime. Oh, oh yeah, boy. Yes. Boy, won't they be insulted? Oh, you're the <laughs> second one. You're, you're the reboot, you guys. Yeah. That's really cool, though, that Shatner took to the Twitterverse to get some support. And 450,000 views, that's, that's quite a bit. Yeah, and over a third of them were for Vulcan. So, I mean, I think, you know, it just goes to show you again that the people that like Star Trek, they do like science. They do like the more realistic exploration. They pay attention to what's actually going on. All right. And moving on, we had a pretty entertaining Oscars, didn't we? Speaking of William Shatner. Yeah, speaking of William Shatner, we did have a very interesting bit of Oscars. Did you get a chance to watch the Oscars at all? I did. I don't miss me the award ceremonies. So let's give a brief recap of what happened. Uh, (laughs) The host this year was Seth MacFarlane, funny man known behind Family Guy, American Dad, the movie Ted. Uh, General Trek nerd, he's had the Next Generation cast, the entire Next Generation cast act for him in Family Guy. He was even in an episode of Star Trek Enterprise. A few episodes. He was in like two or three, actually. He was? Oh, I missed him. Well, at the beginning of the ceremony, he did this whole bit where he had a screen come down and William Shatner as Captain Kirk was transmitting from the future, trying to get him to not be the worst Oscar host in history. He was putting up Entertainment Weekly like headlines. It was like, Seth MacFarlane, worst Oscar host ever. And they just kind of went through these ridiculous little numbers that were apparently turning him into a pariah. And it was kind of fun to see William Shatner kind of be Shatner Kirk. I gotta say, personal story about William Shatner. I mean, I grew up with Star Trek. I love Star Trek. My mother was the one that introduced me to Star Trek. In the 90s, William Shatner was not cool. And then my mom said, you really ought to see Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock. (laughs) Now, I was not gonna watch Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock. And I was like, mom, that's chick flick. She's like, go watch it and don't watch it for her. And I did. And William Shatner was hilarious. And I think that as he got old and just didn't care anymore. He's a funny guy, and he just lets go. And just and once he found that funny guy, he became Denny Crane on Boston Legal, mm-hmm. the Priceline commercials. I mean, he's a really funny guy. And when he doesn't take himself seriously, people love him. The audience seemed to dig him. You know, the audience was kind of feeding into it. Turns out that the headlines the day after were pretty much right on, spot on. <laughs> Seth MacFarlane was the worst Oscar host ever. Boo! They didn't all say that. uh, Yeah, everything I saw was all about, oh, Seth MacFarlane was was sexist and racist and made fun of everybody. What? Stop reading Jezebel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I I was fine with it. I thought he did very well. As for the skit, it was interesting. Do you think they brought him because Seth MacFarlane is such a Trek fan? How awesome is it that Trek is back into the mainstream where it's actually an Oscar event? When was the last time it was an Oscar event? It was it with was uh, Frasier, right? Was that Emmys? Maybe that was the Emmys. Maybe I messed it up. It was the Emmys. Okay. Yeah, Star Trek has not done well with the Academy. Oh, gee whiz, I wonder why, because it's all for nerds and, and such. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's, seriously, I bet it's such a force. We just got done talking about Pluto. I mean, we're naming stuff in the solar system. It's a force of nature these days, and we have to thank J.J. a little bit for bringing it back into the public consciousness. But William Shatner's funny without J.J. You didn't need J.J. to bring back William Shatner. Oh, no, yeah. Shatner is completely self-aware of how he acts, and he eats it up, and he loves yes. it. So more power to him. Actually, have you guys caught Shatner's World, his stage production, one-man mm-hmm. show? I caught that in the city when he did it, and oh, he loves himself. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and not only does he love himself, but he does it with humor, though, and that's what's fun about it, because you're right. He does not take himself seriously, and it was fun to see him on the Oscars, and, and it was a funny little skit, interesting. Yeah, I dug it. I dug it. But you know what? Actually, Tony, you said that the Oscars don't take science fiction and nerdy, geeky stuff seriously. Yeah, well. They don't take Star Trek seriously. Oh, okay, Star Trek. Because I was about to say this infograph that came out on treknews.net, and this little infograph compares Star Wars versus Star Trek, from the movies to domestic box office gross to worldwide gross and to Oscar nominations. And it seems that Star Wars has had 10 awards with 25 nominations. And Star Trek has only had one award and 10 nominations. So, Sad Panda, it's not fair. They have not treated us well over the years over there at the Academy. It's a crying shame. Yeah, but you know what? Star Trek has won 33 Emmys. 
with 155 nominations, what's Star Wars? Nothing. Nothing. So there. We own the <laughs> airwaves. Take it. Yeah, I'm going to take that. I'm just going to take that and run. <laughs> just take it and go. <laughs> okay, so we also had Fathom announcing their next special Next Generation movie event. They've done, for the past four months or so, they've done two events in conjunction with the Blu-ray releases of re-releasing two episodes apiece along with extra features of both season one and season two of Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, come April 25th, We've got the best of both worlds, part one and two in your local cinemas. And I'm not going to lie, I bought my tickets the second they went on sale because there is no way I am missing Locutus of Borg on the big screen. Have you been to any of the other ones? No, I don't. That's the pro I we sold out before I could buy the tickets the other time, so I was not going to lose. Now, I went to the first screening. I think I even missed an episode of Priority One to go see this. And, uh, you did. I did, didn't I? I missed an episode of Priority One Pod, and I may have to miss that episode again. I think we should just take a break from Trek Radio and go see this because it was really fun to be in a theater full of fellow Trek fans laughing at things that I never even thought to laugh at when watching the first release. Just being in the atmosphere, being in the same room and sharing that vibe with fellow Trekkers is just so awesome. The first time I did it was actually a number of years ago. They re-released the pilot episode they re-released of the cage from the original series and they did that in new york uh. city and a bunch of theaters and i was able to make it and that was super fun it was like a midnight thing the theater wasn't as full as the blu-ray release event but it was still so exciting to be surrounded by other trek fans i think i had already been to my first convention so i was like i was like maybe maybe i'll see people that i i met at the convention that'd be so cool uh, it didn't It didn't happen, unfortunately. <laughs> but I got to say, it's an experience that if you can make it to one of these Fathom events, you should definitely go. Now, Leah, you're going to be in attendance. Uh, do you mind sharing where you're going to be going? No, no, no. Yeah, I'll be at the uh, AMC Empire 25. That's the AMC Theater in Times Square. Oh, nice. And that's, yeah, that's right in New York City, right on Times Square. I'm actually going to plan on joining her. And I'm really looking forward to this event. I really am. You know, I'd eat up a priority one evening, but uh, hey, you know, no, just no, no, sometimes... no, 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 no. Let's look at this in perspective. You will be on scene when we're doing the show, right? True that. I can phone in. I think you're right. I think I might have to make this a reporting live from New York City. Reporting live. <laughs> Our intrepid reporter, Elijah, on the scene. <laughs> So we'll have more information. Be sure to just stay tuned to PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'll post information on, on how you could spot us. Maybe we'll even do a little giveaway, some Star Trek Online items or something like that. If you catch us there, we'll give out. So be on the lookout. Follow us on Twitter at STOPriorityOnePodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast. And look out for us in New York City if you're going to be there. All right, our next little bit of Trek-related awesomeness is actually a YouTube video. Now, this was a shot-for-shot -shot trailer, a reenactment of the Star Trek Into Darkness trailer. And it's funny. Leo, you're the one that brought this one up. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about it? So this came out, I'd say, about a month or so ago now, a little bit over, right after the trailer came out. And these guys, Dust Film Originals on YouTube, they've done a couple other shot-for-shots before, but it is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. The best part is that it is so exact to the actual trailer. It just ups the ante even more. They've also posted a side-by-side -side comparison so that you can see how perfectly in sync it is to the real trailer. It just have to kind of see believe it. Now, I may not have watched the Into Darkness trailer enough to have spotted this, but it wasn't until I watched the side-by-side -side comparison of this remake against the original. Links, of course, will be in the show notes. That I noticed, oh my god, there's a freaking bird of prey in the trailer. <laughs> a Klingon bird of prey. That is awesome. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. I know. Seriously. I mean, I knew there were going to be Klingons. At about a minute and 12 seconds into the trailer... That little ship that's swooping through is a Klingon bird of prey. I missed that. Maybe I missed the comments when people were talking about it. But there is a Klingon bird of prey swooping through in the trailer. That is epic. So there's obviously going to be some kind of Klingon action. Not just hand-to-hand -hand combat, but ship combat too. And and boy, do we love our ship combat. Do we oh, ever. Yeah. And it was funny. You know, it's it's really ingenious. It, you know, it's obviously like little figurines and the guy's wearing a wig and super super fake eyebrows it's a parody it really is a parody but it's funny and it's well done 
they actually recorded the audio with their own voices. So like the sound effects is all just nothing but voices. Oh, the and brig, the soundtrack too. Yes, the soundtrack is just their voices. The brig where John Harrison is being kept is their balcony. It's funny. It's funny. Go watch it. Links will be in the show notes. Watch the side-by-side comparison. It's spot on. It's great. It's great. It really is. So who has an Xbox? I Not me, do. but I have a PC. Ah, but you see, is our next topic coming off for PC? I don't know. Star Trek The Game coming out. I believe it is. So no, it Star seems Trek like... The Game is going to come out. This is the tie-in to the new movie, uh, unless I'm very much mistaken. No, it's a tie- yeah, it's definitely a tie-in to the new movie. It seems like the week of April 20th is going to be a very big week for Star Trek. You've got Best of Both Worlds. You've got The Game. That's, Do you think that's... it's coincidence that the movie's coming out in early May? I don't think. I, don't... I think there might be some coordination going on. There might be some uh, collusion. Wouldn't put it past them. But in the game, you play as Kirk or Spock. You do have the option of dropping in in co-op. So jump on Xbox Live, play with a friend. And this isn't the first time that we've seen video game movie tie-ins. The first major one was way back when with The Matrix. We had Enter the Matrix that took you on a story involving Niobe and Ghost, who were you know working, of course, behind the scenes. And, and it really was great. What was great about that game was that it was independent, and even though if you didn't play the game, you were still able to watch the trilogy and enjoy the trilogy standalone. But if you play the game, you had an added story to it. You understood what was happening between Reloaded and Revolutions, what Niobe was dealing with, what Ghost was involved with. And I hope that that's going to be the case here, because in the last movie, in the 2009 movie, if you didn't read the comics, you were kind of lost as to what the hell was going on with Spock and why he was there in the past and causing a new mirror universe. The explanation of that happened very quickly in that one mind meld in the cave. But if you read the comics, you got a lot of backstory of what was going on in the prime universe. So I'm hoping that with this, with the comics, with the game for the consoles. I hope that it's not going to be so dependent, that we're not going to have to depend so much on it for storyline. Now, I didn't read the 2009 lead-up comic book. I didn't have an issue with it, and I went to see it at midnight with a fellow TNG fan and then our third friend who had never seen a lick of Star Trek in his life. And he was only confused by, like, you know, the tiny Easter egg-type jokes. He didn't seem to have a problem with the general plot. Do you think that you feel that way because you did read the comic books and you got extra backstory that you felt it was missing? Okay, tell me your opinion about the first movie. What did you think of it as Star Trek? First off, I felt it didn't feel the same way that other Trek movies do because of the fact it was shiny, it was rebooted, it felt faster than a lot of other movies have. And I think that while I missed some of the, forgive me, kitsch that goes along with your classic Trek and your TNG, I also appreciated what they were doing in that they had rebooted for a new audience and they wanted to freshen it up, you know what I mean? I mean, Enterprise hadn't been on for years and clearly it had done well, so you needed a new group to get in it with you. And I thought that in doing a timeline reboot, an alternate, an, an AU, an alternate timeline, J.J. Abrams and writers were able to simultaneously bring in the new group and say to the old, it's okay, what you love is still there and we have not heard it. This just happens to live alongside it and if you'd like to be a part of this, absolutely can be. And that's how I felt. I went back and read Countdown after the fact. Oh, you did read Countdown. Okay, all right, never mind. I just okay, go, didn't go. read it before I originally saw the movie. So I do know the backstory. Okay. Like, Jordy built the squid ship, which I liked. The Countdown series was very heavy. You know, it was very story-driven. It felt to me as if though you would appreciate the 2009 movie better if you read the Countdown series. And that's fine and dandy. I understand that they want to branch out and get you know, as many different angles and, and try to attack the story on, in games and in comics. I get that. I get that. But you got to do it where the movie still can stand on its own. And that little one snippet on the mind meld... For a new audience going into Trek and seeing this movie, sure, you know, whatever. It goes right over their head. They don't, oh, this is Star Trek. Oh, cool. Boom. Pew, pew, pew. <sighs> oh, it's a lot of fighting. Cool. But for the Trek audience, the established Trek audience that are going, what the frack is this shiny Apple store? If you read the Countdown series, you may actually appreciate 
the story a little more because there is Prime Universe explanation as to the story that led up to JJ's universe. Here's my take on it, Elijah. I think you're absolutely right. And here's what I think. I think that uh, the writers, Orsi and Kurtzman, I think that they're showing off their Star Trek cred with the comics. They're communicating for anybody who's interested, look, we know what we're fooling around with. In the first one, they blew up Romulus, which some people are never going to forgive them for, but we understand, if you read the comics, what's going on with this guy, with this Nero guy, who otherwise just seems like any other screen-chewing bad guy villain who wants to blow things up. I haven't read any of this Countdown series yet, but I probably will, but I understand that Robert April's in it. Well, they're given a nod to their Trek audience that, yeah, here's another way that we're taking things that you may know from the Prime Universe, and we're twisting them a little bit over here. But it's a nod to everybody that knows and loves the franchise and knows and loves the Prime Universe history. I just hope that for this sequel, Countdown into Darkness series and the game aren't so necessary to the plot. Because Countdown, really, if you're listening to this and you watch 2009 and you hate it, I strongly recommend that you go back, you get your hands on the Countdown comics and read those. Then rewatch 2009 and it'll give you a new insight. It'll give you that, oh, all right, this kind of now, I get it. I get what's going on now. It's not just a, you may a, not a dirty them. reboot. Yeah, you may not forgive them. <laughs> But you will understand, right? You will understand where this story came from. The current Countdown to Darkness, the first two issues are out. And I did go back and read the original Countdown. So I know what you mean when you say, like, it's it's heavier in terms of prime knowledge. And it gives you a lot more backstory to the 2009 movie. Right now, Countdown to Darkness, with the two issues that are out so far, sort of feels like it's more going to be an additional half hour before the movie all right, so what do you think? Do you think J.J. Abrams is a pig for taking on both Star Trek and Star Wars? According to Shatner, he's a pig. A talented pig, but a pig nonetheless. It's just another case of an old guy that just doesn't care anymore, you know? Yeah. I, I watched that clip, <laughs> and he wasn't being mean to Abrams. He was saying, look, sonny boy, come talk to Papa Shatner. Oh, and hire me, by the way. Come talk to Papa Shatner. And, uh, and, you know, get a little taste of how the world ought to work here, young man. I think Shatner is still slightly butthurt that he wasn't allowed to be in 2009. But I think, at the same time, he's just goofing around. Not to mention Abrams is a massive Star Wars fan, if anything, so can't really slight him for wanting to take this. Like, this is, dude, he's a kid in a candy store. What we're talking about here is an interview that with Bill Shatner on Movie Fanatic. We'll have links in the show notes. I understand why he would say he's a pig. I mean, he's y yes, he's talented. So I saw eight, right? I saw um, Su Super, Super eight. eight. I'm sorry, I saw Super Eight. I saw Cloverfield, and actually, recently, I've started the Star Wars saga, right? So I've so far I've gone through the prequels, and now I'm finally at a New Hope, right? As I was watching the prequels, I was like, holy crap! I feel like I'm watching a combat scene from a JJ Star Trek movie from the 2009 movie. It's funny how much he infused from the Lucas prequels, at least from the prequels. Sound effects, from booming effects, from camera shots, lighting. It's just, I was like, uh, whoa, dude, whoa, whoa, whoa. So I think what bothers me most about the whole thing is that, you know, he was all, no, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it, and then I'm going to do it. Well, it's just a good negotiating tactic is all that is. Just let him know that it's not going to be cheap. You're not going to get me for a song, mister. I'm on record as loving Star Wars more than anything, but, you know, but I have my principles. Oh, my principles. They're not inexpensive, but they can be had for a certain price. A little higher, mm -hmm, a little higher, mm -hmm. a little higher. Yeah, that's just a good negotiating tactic. But I want to bring this up. I tweeted you, sir, and you favorited said tweet, and said tweet said, friends don't let friends watch the prequels, and you went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> I did, I did. I, I had to. I had to watch it. Oh, oh that's, you, you truly, sir, have exposed yourself to danger beyond my capability to bring you back from. <laughs> May God have mercy on your soul. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to get through the A New Hope and the final two of the saga. But um, get through Empire. Come on, man. I know. You know what's funny? Somebody on my Facebook wrote that people compare the prequels to like Starship Troopers 3 and the and 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> to the godfather so i'm trying to be the judge for myself it's been years since i've seen the original three and it's about time that i familiarize myself with thine enemy 
So I'm in the process of watching, <laughs> of watching those last three. So what I was ultimately getting at was, I don't think J.J. Abrams is that great of a director. I think he's a really good copycat. I think he's a pretty phenomenal director. I've been a fan of him for a very long time. I watched Alias religiously. And granted, when he produces things, he steps in and then he lets it go so he can do something else. Because he is at the forefront. He's a company at this point, more so than anything. Because he yes. has built Bad Robot up to a certain level. Between Alias and Lost and the pilot of Fringe, come on now. And then I think that while he might not be the best, I think that his directorial vision for action movies is pretty spectacular. Because if you didn't think the train crash in Super 8 was worth the price of your admission, you are drunk, sir. I'm just not impressed by him. I'm really, I really am not. I'm impressed by Spielberg. I'm impressed by Tarantino. You know, Tarantino's got his dialogue, you know. Spielberg has his, his his storytelling. Spielberg's been making movies since the seventies. Yeah, but since 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 his first movies, he, they've been amazing. All right, before this descends into complete you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> we you're have right, one but... more little item left to go. I see it from our little notes here that there's a Star Trek DVD re-release. Oh yes. Who the hell buys DVDs anymore? Why are they wasting money on this crap? Although the covers are beautiful. <laughs> And they're quite gorgeous. They why? Why? <laughs> well, they will join the other DVDs in my house, Gathering Dust. You're going to buy these? Be nice. I don't know the last time I bought a DVD. I'm a DVD sort of collector. If it's something I like, even if it's on the Netflix, I want to physically own it because I like displaying it and showing it off. My issue with this DVD re-release is that it was for TNG specifically, but they are currently re-releasing them all on Blu-ray, so I don't right, know... Right, the modern format? I don't know why they're going back and re-releasing on DVD, too. It just seems foolish at this point. I don't know. I don't see why they would do it. I don't know who buys DVDs anymore. I think money could have been invested somewhere else, or these pieces of art could have been put maybe to the movies, if they ever remastered the movies. But I'm sure some collector out there will enjoy the last relic of outdated media. I would have taken these boxes on the Blu-ray because the Blu-ray boxes are nothing special. I definitely would have taken this art on the Blu-ray, but what are you going to do? And just a brief recap of February 2013 Star Trek Online news. It was the third anniversary for Star Trek's venture into the online space. Large celebrations included a temporal ambassador mission where you come in contact with Denise Crosby's Tasha Yar character who turns out didn't die quite as quickly as we all thought she did at the end of the episode yesterday's Enterprise. It was a well-received mission, and players got two free ships at the end of it if they were a sufficient rank to get that mission. Also, the game saw the release of the new Andorian Escorts. These are definitely glass cannons. They shoot fast, fly fast, and don't stand up to too much punishment. But they've also been well-received by the community. Also in community news, there was a PvP boot camp designed to give players the knowledge they need to get an edge to stand up against their fellow captains as they go toe-to-toe in Star Trek Online's PvP missions. Also, community manager Branflakes hosted a series of role-playing roundtables for players who are interested in exploring the imaginative side of playing a Star Trek character in the game. And that is the big news for February 2013. All right, Captains, that wraps up this month in Star Trek news. Let's head on into our interview with Manu Intereme. So with us this evening is American television and theater actor Manu Intereme, known by many of you as Icheb, the young Brunali, who was freed from the Borg Collective and joined the crew of Voyager in its sixth season. Thank you for joining us here on Trek It Out with Priority One. No, you're welcome, man. Nice to be here. Thank you, thank you. And again, I'm sorry we interrupted a very important appointment. <laughs> uh, we will try not to do that again. I am laying on my bum, on my back, on my bed. I think I'm good. All I right. don't see how you can ruin things. <laughs> hey, baby, will you give me some jelly beans for the interview? Maybe a little lobster uh, and uh, dancers, a couple of dancers, and um, I'll be all right. Nice. All right. <laughs> all right, so let's get to know you a little better, shall we? Why don't we start with uh, some of the core questions? Like, tell us what inspired you to pursue a career in acting. Of sheer and utter stupidity. Um, 
ignorance, narcissism, and youth. That's, I can, I feel you there, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, what, I, you know, the real story, I, I mean, that's the real story. But um, if you want a sweet story, I was five. I was watching a live production of Peter Pan, the community theater. And the actors started flying around the stage, and I knew five years old, or four or five years old, that's what I wanted. And I was on the road with hippie parents following the dead and camping in campgrounds and, and you know, running all over the planet. And um, I told them, you know, every city we stopped in, I wanted that. I wanted, I wanted to move to L.A., I wanted to move to L.A. They didn't do that for me, but I did, you know, just stay in community theater at least all the way through up the different schools, different towns I was in. And then when I was 17, uh, there was a manager and an audience in one of the plays I was doing in San Luis Obispo, California, asked me what I was doing with my life and offered me to represent me if I moved out to L.A., so I backed up my stuff and I did. So what was that role? What role was it that you were doing? I was doing a play called Marvin's Room. They made a movie out of it with De Niro and DiCaprio and Meryl Streep. It's a story about a, a troubled youth and a, a family struggling with cancer. It's a quite powerful play. Okay. Now, do you prefer stage versus film? What do you feel at home most? I don't like theater, man. I guess, you know, there's a lot of snobby theater actors out there that will be annoyed with me for saying this, but I find theater to be inherently fake in the sense that you have to project and it's always a performance you know when you're doing film you're able to say things at this level if you need to say things at this level and, and you can get into it and then sometimes you'll get in i i just i love making movies so i, I like doing tv if it's, it's a if the show is quality and not just selling you know budweiser during the commercials kind of lost my love for theater a, a while ago and i did a play a while ago and didn't really enjoy the experience. And I'm into watching it sometimes, but I'm just not into doing it much anymore. Oh, man, we were friends at the start of this interview, <laughs> and now you're talking to two kids. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's really interesting, though, that you mentioned that you felt that film was more intimate than theater when some people think it's backwards. Yeah, well, you know, film, you can actually be how human beings are because you don't have to project. You know, there's some Broadway shows where they mic the actors, and that's nice. Sometimes that's, you know, I've never gotten to do anything that big, so. But the camera's right in there, you know, so you have to be as real as possible. If somebody's not watching you from 60 feet away and you're in an intense romantic scene with a girl and you're going, you're very beautiful, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and in film, it's you're so gorgeous. You know, you're right up close. I feel like you can be more truthfully in the scene. The funny thing about acting in general that you, I get my whole life, you know, dating girls or, or talking to people is people always think actors lie for a living. I always get that. How do I know you're telling the truth? You're an actor. I always find that so funny because, you know, in a sense, they have an argument. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to the truth of the scene and play humanity like for what it is, right? Like, and show people what they are. Whoever your character is, you're trying to get to the truth of that guy and really show people what people are. And we're not, we're always trying to get to the truth. We're not trying to lie and fake cry. We're trying to cry. <laughs> well said, well so, said. That's, that's, yeah. that's actually very well said. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, but that's a, that's a constant thing. That people never trust actors because normally we're narcissistic people and we're bullshitters. But <laughs> beyond that, I still go with my other argument. When it comes to film and television, as a performer, do you have a preference in your genre? Like you were talking about, you know, emotional connectivity and, and finding the meaning in a scene and things like that. Do you prefer doing drama then or do you like science fiction or comedy? Yeah, I have the comedian's curse, which is I'm pretty good at comedy, but I don't much like doing it. I prefer drama. The dream would be to, to do an HBO show or a Showtime show or, or, you know, one of those really high quality. I, I consider those almost film, you know, those shows like True Blood and Gang of Thrones and all that. Boardwalk Empire, those kind of shows. They're, it's almost like watching really high quality film. And, and then you get your TV shows, which I won't throw out any names, but your, your CBS, NBC dramas and that aren't quite up to that level of production value. And I did a, a wonderful show, actually, and, and well-written. And Mark Schwann, a buddy of mine, runs it. I was the main villain, one of the main villains on One Tree Hill last year. 
But when you do those type of dramas, you can't take the emotional beats like you can in film. They want you to spit the line out as truthfully as you can and get the scene moving and get the commercial. And there's a typical type of acting for whether you're doing a commercial or a, a television drama or a sitcom. You know, sitcoms are even more like just unreal. You know, I just, I don't know. It, my preference is to work as close as you can to dramatic film work. And throw, you know, I, I'm not against comedy. I you know, throw, throw one in there every now and then. It's fun to switch it up. But I just like films that make me cry or hit me in, a, in an emotional spot. You know, when you, you see such a good movie that you walk out of there and you're thinking about your connectivity with the rest of mankind or just rocked you in a way that you're holding back your tears or you're tearing up. Oh, like, yeah. You know, that's the kind of work that I want to be involved in. And it's so rare to get to do that. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your career with Star Trek. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you did get involved with Voyager? Um, and, sure. and before auditioning for the gig, were you aware of how large and passionate the Star Trek fan base was? You know, I'm very proud of my work on Voyager. It was one of those shows that I think did affect a million people. I don't think the fan base would be as, as large and as loyal as it is if, if the show wasn't high quality and had a message behind it. I had a blast those two years on that show. But how I got involved is, you know, the typical way that you do in this town, you know, you're aging to see the audition, you, you go in and you, know, you uh, did well. I read for the casting director and then they, it's a, usually a three or four step process. You just pre-read for casting. Later in your career, sometimes you go straight to the director session. Then you go to network where all the suits are in the room with their notepads and their scary looks on their faces and they don't give you any idea whether you're good or bad or talk to you and then make little notes and stare at you like you're stink. And, um, like cattle. Direct... They yeah, stare at you yeah, like cattle. Yeah. Next. And, we'll, and they're all making notes and you're wondering what the hell are they right? Yeah, it's, that's the tough one, the network test. And then you get, you get the role. And I, originally I auditioned all the way through for that other character, the first Borg that died in that episode, the bad guy. And they gave that role to the other guy and then cast me as Borg number two, which originally I was a little bummed about, but then he ended up on the season, and the next season, so thank God I didn't get that part. That's the story. There's a little bit of another story about how I got the audition, but it's a long one, so I don't know if... We've got time. I... you got time? All right. My agent was, at the time, was a, a wonderful man named Stephen Simon, and he was flamboyantly um, effeminate and just quite an agent for kids. And uh, I was, you know, right at the edge of being a kid there. I think I was 19 or 20 when I got the part. And I had auditioned for a movie and got a movie a few years earlier called Senseless with Marlon Wayans and David Spade. It was just a very small part playing this. It was a take on that scene in Pulp Fiction where they saves the guy with stabbing him in the heart with Marlon Wayans and Matthew Lillard. And I auditioned for that film and Penelope Fierce directed that film and it was one of my first jobs and I just was terrible on set. I got yelled at by the director. I couldn't do anything right. I was nervous. I, I just, performance worked and they used it, but it was, I considered giving up acting. I was like so bummed at the end of that shoot. And Ron Serna, who cast Star Trek, happened to cast that movie. So my agent and him are, believe it or not, getting a manicure-pedicure together at the same <laughs> uh, salon one day. And my agent has heard about this role on Star Trek, so he goes, you got to see my client, Monte Rene. And Ron was like, no way. I hired that kid. He was terrible. It was awful. It, no way. I'm not going to see him. And my agent threw a fit. And the lady that was doing her feet cut his toe while he was throwing his fit to the point where it was bleeding. So he was like, F you, motherfucker, you are going to see my client. I just cut my foot going up. This, you're just going to see him again. God damn it. <laughs> um, so, so Ron, you know, gave me the shot again. And uh, that's basically the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. That's an awesome story. Yeah. <laughs> Since you originally auditioned for the first Borg and you ended up with each head, I guess maybe you didn't know as um, how far the character was going to be taken and how you'd get to develop it. What about each yeah. character did you enjoy or you found the most interesting? Did you even know what a Borg was when you had auditioned for it? Oh, I had seen... Yeah, I was a fan of the original movies. You know, I was a fan of the original cast and all the films. Um, awesome. And I had caught in a couple scenes of a couple episodes of Voyager because my buddy Damien was a fan. And a couple times at his house, I'd caught an episode. And 
So I knew who the characters were. I knew who the Borg were. I, I hadn't really seen the Locuta. Oh, I, I maybe I had seen First Contact. Yeah, I'd probably seen First Contact by that point. So, yeah, I had a pretty solid grip on who the Borg were. I think the writers did an incredible job of giving me a lot to play with in a, a whole arc. And, you know, he got to grow as a, a boy and a man and a person. And in the first couple episodes of him... I hated playing the character because I thought he was just kind of a whiny kid that they were going to get rid of. And I just thought he was kind of a brat. And I thought, you know, they're just going to ship me out pretty soon and I'm just playing a brat. This sucks. But that changed real quick with that child's play episode and going to meet the parents and when they, they decided to make me a... You know, I don't know. To this day, I don't know what the plan in the writer's room was, you know, whether they were planning on making it a part of the show or not. Um, and, you know, testing my chops slowly with a few scenes to see if they could use me or not. So I don't know, you know, how, how that all went down. All I know is after that Child's Play episode, Brandon Brogger came down and shook my hand and said, good job on that episode, and then I kind of stayed on the show from that point on. But I was thrilled with the whole arc, just getting to be involved in that show for as long as I was. I had a, a great time. I mean, to the point where a couple scripts I would read and call my mom and cry and I'm going to get to make people feel something. And, you know, I was, I was thrilled to be on that show. Were your parents Trekkies? Um, yeah, you could say so. My dad was, my mom wasn't. He's written a couple of sci-fi novels, so he was definitely down with, and he's also a very metaphysical, esoteric guy. So he, he always liked things going on with my life and his TV and how they all fit together in the cosmic scheme of things. I told you they hit these. Now, we've heard some interesting behind-the-scenes moments during the filming of uh, Voyager. Do you have uh, a memorable behind-the-scenes moment? You know, they're all, there's so many. They, Bob and Bob and Bob and uh, Robert and Bob and Bob and Bob and all, and Bob. And, uh, <laughs> is there another Bob on the show? I think it was a Bob or a Robert. All those guys. <laughs> They were also funny, man, and Ethan as well. And at that point, by season six and season seven, they were so good at what they did that they could mess around right before the take and then just turn the, their character right on, you know. And I, I wasn't at that point yet. You know, I was just finding out who each of was. And, but, you know, just working with all those guys, uh, they were always cracking jokes and just saying something rude after the line just for the heck of it. I remember once Bob was standing there and the line was something to be effective and tell the captain I'll see her on the bridge or tell the captain something. And then he finished it with a comma. Oh, and mentioned that she's a righteous <laughs> and, and, you know, and they would always add a little, some, some little flavor to the end of the take that was just, you know, obscene or, and Bob Picardo, he could even deliver the lines that were written in a way that he could make them mean something else. For instance, I was on the table, passed out, Seven standing next to me. Seven said something to him to the effect of, it, it's pain I caused him. And Bob was supposed to say back, well, it was pain he was willing to endure. But he put in a an inflection of, it was pain I caused him. Yes, but it was pain he was willing to endure. <laughs> you know, it just overtly makes things sexual. One time with the kids, Ethan was supposed to read us a book in that episode of The Haunting of Deck 12. Oh, yeah. And he said to the kids, the line was, I'll read you this book, Slaughter Meets the Invisible Vertebrae, but he changed it into, I'll read this book, My Pet Duck Farts Too Much. <laughs> and And the kids you know, kids and farts, it, that was it. They were laughing for the next two hours we couldn't get that take because every time he would go to say the title, those kids would crack up. Um, <laughs> and he enjoyed that, you know. And then what's his name getting his, his uh, Tom Paris, uh, like, Robert the actress Duncan name, McHale. Robert Duncan McNeil. Yeah. He's one of the bobs. Yeah, one of the bobs. <laughs> Robert, I should have just gone with that. He was doing that episode where he plays Captain whatever in the hologram. And, uh, they were going to do a jetpack burn, and that jetpack burn ended up lasting too long and not being able to shut off, and it gave him third-degree burns and burnt his, the, the, the butt right off his pants. And it wasn't funny for him. It was funny for everybody else. And so. uh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. But there are moments like that all the time. I got one more, I guess. I was We would go in to do ADR, and we would do ADR jokes on each other. That's where you go and you, do, you fill in the lines that the sound something might have crashed on set or they just didn't get good enough sounds and you go replace the line in a, in a, in a booth. And so you'd, you'd set up other actors and there was a, a scene with 
Robert Beltran, where he comes up to me. I'm, I'm making a puzzle with Naomi, and he says he says he's got a case of anterior and some cider hidden. And he says, your secret's safe with me as long as you keep mine in the ADR booth. I went, what do you mean? The young boy's in your trailer? <laughs> so, you know, when he comes in an hour later, he's really focused, ready to give a line. And we would always do that kind of stuff to each other. So Nice, nice, nice. It was, you know, it was a great set. Everybody got along. Cool. So it looks like you'll be reprising the role for Star Trek Renegades. Can you talk about how you got involved with that? It looks like it. I, I think it's Tim. Yeah, I, I was funny. I'm thinking back, and and I don't remember exactly who approached me first about it. But I think Tim. You know, I'd seen Gods and Men, and I thought if they were going to take that another level up, tough to do a sci-fi space movie for less than a million dollars, yeah. let alone less than a few million dollars. So I enjoyed it, and and I thought if this is take two, if this is their second try at making a Star Trek film, and all these other actors were on board, and I trust Tim Ross, and he was directing, so I said, sure, go ahead, use my name, and let's do this. I haven't seen a script yet, but I have a an idea about what's happened to each of them and, and what some of the story is. So I'm excited to see it when it's done. Can you talk to us at all about it? Because, you see, we know what happens to Icheb in 2409, but can you talk at all what's happening in Renegades? Is that under um, under wraps? Is, you know what, from the books, or, from, or did somebody tell you? No, or? so it turns out that Icheb is also in a game called Star Trek Online. It's a massively multiplayer game, like, like 2 million players okay. playing, and uh, he's Lieutenant Commander, and he's a quest giver. And actually, I was going to ask you later, if the developers ever approached you to do a voiceover job for that, would you be interested? Would that be something that you'd be willing to do? If, you know, if they had some money for me, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure they would. <laughs> you know, I was really bummed because I'm, I'm leaving to Wales this week and I had an audition for one of those new video games, the crime video game that, you know, um, just a big, long, no-capture voice role. And I, I really wanted to do some of that work and haven't had the opportunity yet. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. What I've been told so far is that each of has become a part of this renegade crew, or he was a part of this project called Section 31. He had been reassimilated by the Borg at some point and re-rescued. So the Borg have developed all these new powers, and they have been able to blend in and get a little less robotic, maybe more a little Terminator 2-ish where they can like really look human or, you know... And each of was put through this Section 31 to help him get back to his Brunali self, but also keep these board new powers so he could become this kind of gnarly power for the Federation. But something in the nanoprobes and something to do with that whole experiment was a little dark. He's kind of fighting a, a ghost of the machine, if you will. So I know that it's going to be a darker each of and uh, more, you know, a grown-up one, and that's about really all I know. I mean, are you, does that excite you, like, to, to have a darker, you know, approach to the, the Trek lore? Yeah, I do. I think it can be, I think, you know, I think the concept is really fun. This crew might have to even, like, I'm not sure, I don't know if that's the story, but I think they might even have to, you know, give up their Federation badges and become rebels to try to find out corruption at the top of the Federation, and I think it's a great idea. I think um, if it's written well, it'll be a really cool story. I'm not going to lie. That sounds awesome. Yeah, like, that sounds so cool. This is a Kickstarter project that they started up, too, and it, it grossed over $240,000 yeah. by backers from the community. And, you know, yeah. I'm sure many of even our listeners invested some money into that. As an actor, yeah. does that kind of change your perspective of, of the project in any way, shape, or form, knowing that well, it, it's yeah. already been invested by, the, by listeners? Yeah, I mean, I really, really, really want it to be good, you know? And in fact, I'm not a producer, so I don't have really any control over, over what they do with the project. I'm just going to come in and act, but I am a producer in real life, you know? I, I've got a movie coming out called Benjamin Troubles coming up, and another film that I'm producing called Dark River. But from that angle, I don't think $250,000 is enough to do it right. I haven't seen the script. Maybe they kept it simple. Maybe it's possible, but should find a way to raise some more. Do it for 400 or half a mil, even if it takes another year to get those funds. But either way, I'm involved and I'm happy to do it. But I don't know how they're going to do it that cheap. It's hard to make high-quality cinema for low money, especially when you're talking about spaceships and building bridges and 
tunnels and special effects and all that stuff. So I think all of us actors are kind of just sitting back going, I hope they're raising more money and we'll see. That yeah. hopes, you know, crossing the fingers yeah. and waiting for that script. I'm hearing it's real close to being done and I'm itching to read it. And I think all of us are really excited and all of us are probably a, a little bit scared too. But to get to strap on the character again in a different light should be a lot of fun. But it's from the fan perspective, you know, all these people gave them money. So, like, it's a real letdown if we make a piece of junk. I don't want to be responsible for for all those broken dreams. Can you talk to us about your move into producing? Like, what inspired you to pursue that side of filmmaking? Well, you get to a point in Hollywood when you realize that people that have sustained careers as actors normally are also producer-directors. And if you don't make that move, you're just, even if you get to that A-list level, your normal shelf life for an A-lister is 10 years. And then people kind of get burnt out on you and you kind of fall into that B-movie category and then you kind of go away. And there's the other actors that have big, long, sustained careers, your Clint Eastwoods and your Al Pacinos and your folks like that. But it's usually because they have control over what kind of work they're doing and they're not at the mercy of just taking roles that the system decides to give them. I think sometimes you can sign, when you get to that A level, like a, a three-picture deal with a studio, and, and it's up to the studio what bump you're going to do and not, not necessarily up to you. So I think that was the, you know, the reason to begin with and to own the product and to try to get to that point where I'm producing and directing for the studio. And I wanted to get a more of a handle and more of a control over the work that I was doing. And that seemed to be the way to do it. Now, was that change daunting at all, like moving into producing or did you kind of pick up on it pretty quickly? Oh, it's hellacious, man. Yeah. It's so crazy. I mean, I, I, um, it's terrifying. And it's a lot of work, you know, because the producer raises the money and they, they do everything. They hire all the departments and they oversee all the departments. And they, you've got to find a team. You've got to find a bunch of people you trust. You've got to find your DP and your gaffers and your lighting guys and, and your lighting companies and your camera crew and your camera companies and your, you cast the actors and hire the actors and hire the lawyer and the accountant and deal with the distributors. Actors are lucky, man. They they show up, they get credit for the movie being good, they go home, they go to their trailer and nap between takes. You know, if I could just act and I was confident that that's what I could do, I wouldn't produce at all. But um, the lucky few get to do that, so... Now, with things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, are you depending on those more? Are you looking at those more to be a part of projects that you have more of a handle on? Or do you think it's still very much in the hands of the suits? I hope it doesn't. I hope Kickstarter stays alive and well and and people keep supporting projects through Kickstarter. And unfortunately, you know, I I don't want to... I don't ever do inter. I should be so much better at interviews than at just saying the right thing and swallowing what I really believe. But the truth is, I don't. <laughs> no. I no, you're doing great, and, and our audience loves you for it. You know, I don't think Kickstarter's going to last. First of all, there's too much room for corruption in Kickstarter because you can say you're going to do this amazing project. And, you know, if you raise money for a film and you get investors, they have a, a part of your company. They, they get a percentage of the profit of the film. They, they've bought into shares almost, you know. With donations and Kickstarter, you don't necessarily have any legal obligation. You raise $400,000, you could make a movie for twenty grand and put the rest in your pocket and laugh. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think a lot of people do that. I'm not hip to what's come out on, you know, what projects have been released on Kickstarter that have gotten their funds that have been great or that have that have gotten some attention. I think the government's going to try to shut it down. I think people are going to stop believing in it, and I don't think that crowdfunding thing is going to last. I hope that I am 100% wrong because it's, I think it's a really radical thing and, and a beautiful thing when it's done right, you know. I've never done one personally. It would be awesome to get a thousand people behind a project and, and then deliver something great to them for their donations. It'd be awesome, but I think there's too much room for people to do the opposite. Gotcha, man. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, that's not how I've raised my funds yet. It's always in the back of my head to think about trying to Kickstarter, but never done it myself. 
Well, this is generally the part of the interview where we kind of open up the mic and, and let you talk about the projects that you've been involved with and, and what you're currently working on, what you're looking forward to, what the audience and your fans should keep their eyes open for. What's in store? Okay, uh, well, they should definitely check out a film that was released recently called Fortress. Fortress was a World War II film directed by Michael Phillip, who will also be helping produce my film Dark River that's going to be uh, about a year and a half to two years down the road. But Fortress was an incredible achievement. It was like a $400,000 movie. It looks like a $15 million film. It's about it's like a Memphis Belle type of film about a bunch of guys on the B-17 bomber in World War II. I play this character, Charlie O'Hare. It's a great film. It's out on Blu-ray. Then I was also in um, J. Edgar for just a moment in that DiCaprio film. Uh, it's a blink and you miss me, but I played uh, this character, Alvin Purpose. It's awesome to work with DiCaprio. But coming down the line here, I have a film that I executive produced and I star in called Benjamin Troubles. And it should be released, you know, probably within the year. It's about a kid down on his luck who has just cleaned up his life. And he's a, he's a graffiti artist and he's a street painter and an artist. And he's having a real tough time with life. And he finds this magic pair of blue jeans that produce a $100 bill on the hour, every hour in the right pocket. Um, and it's called Benjamin Troubles, and it's kind of a, a romance and a comedy, kind of a dark comedy romance mixture. It's going to be a, a fun film. I'm also in a film called Six Gun Savior, which is independent Western, just playing a bad guy in a, in a short scene, but it, it should be a sweet little scene. I also just shot a film called Abstraction and got to do a scene opposite Eric Roberts, and that was kind of fun. Renegades is coming up. And also season nine of One Tree Hill was also released on DVD recently. And I play a vicious, vicious villain six episodes of that season. Oh, and Dark River. Dark River is going to be uh, just, I'm really excited about this movie. This is my third film producing wise. So I'm starting to really kind of get a grip on, on my art and my craft. Uh, I've got this great director, Marcin Teodoro, who just released a film called Closer. And he wrote it with uh, David Henry Martin, who's an amazing writer. And it's about these seven kids that go up to the mountains to celebrate a wedding engagement. And it's kind of, long story short, we're trying to do a um, deliverance, but with 20-something kids instead of Burt Reynolds and old guys. So it's a thriller (laughs) run through the woods. But it's a smart film, you know, like Deliverance was a smart movie. This isn't your typical just seven kids run from a psycho. It's a smart film. So that's pretty much on the horizon. I also have been painting for the last few years with my girlfriend, Lauren Haley. And we started a company called FBA Collective that you can go to online or there's a Facebook page and you can see all of our paintings and we're looking for gallery openings and we've got prints and all that stuff. I've gotten just really into painting over the last few years and the whole painting scene. And that FBACollective.com, is that the website? www.fbacollective.com, but it needs to be updated. The Facebook page is a better place to work at the moment. Okay, awesome, awesome. And you yourself have a Facebook page, right, for uh, fans to follow you? I do, yeah. Um, it's Monumente Rainway 1, 2, 3. Uh, my Twitter is just at Monumente Rainway. Okay, all right, cool, cool. So we will, of course, have those links in the show notes for our listeners to follow you. And, you know, I just got into Twitter, man. I, I'm so not hip to the whole world at large when it comes to the Twitter and the Facebook scene, but I'm just getting my foot wet, and I'm enjoying it. So um, the Twitter thing's fun. I, a couple of days ago, I was at Disneyland and tweeted all day the weirdest quotes that I heard on rides or going around Disneyland all day. So. <laughs> Oh, and I also have the official painting site if anyone wants to come check out my work. www.facebook.com slash greatart. One, two, three. <laughs> nice. One, two, three, four. Well, FBA Collective, you know, we were going to be all secretive about what it stands for. We're still going to be, but if you know me at all, you can guess. Okay. The great art is the hit. Nice. The F is a... A swear uh, word? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, oh, now, actually, one last question. In your On your Facebook page, you have a picture where you're all up on Tim Russ's face. What What is that project? That project's called The Fifth Passenger, and that is just the, one of the best freaking scripts I've ever read in my whole life. But at the moment, it is just a dream in the mind of a director and a producer. I was going to get involved as a producer 
there's a few reasons I decided not to, but God, that's a good script. And I hope those guys get their money and we go forward, Ethan Phillips and Tim and me are involved. And so far, all they have is a trailer, and they're going to go out and try to find their money. Do you know if the trailer's out somewhere where we can link it to? No, it's going to be out in about, like, a week. So if people uh, follow me on Facebook, I'll announce it as soon as it's ready to be seen. Awesome, awesome. Well, Manu, thank you so very much for joining us this evening, man. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you'll come on again in the future to talk more about your projects and what you're involved with. I know our listeners are thoroughly going to enjoy this interview. Sure, man. Anytime. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank have, you. Have yourself a good evening. You too. Bye. All right, Captains. Just to recap, you can follow Manu on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Manu Intereme1234 or Twitter at Manu Intereme. Or catch him at Trek Tracks in Atlanta on the weekend of April 20th or in August at Space City Con in Houston, Texas. complete.